0: Hello there, Wildcats. Happy Monday, and welcome back to another installment of Behind the Beaker. It's your host, Alexandra Perry, and I hope you guys are having a good start to your week. I am very excited to bring this podcast to you today. And so today we have Donald Falk. Now, his last name is spelled F-A-L-K, and I keep wanting to say folk for some reason, because I'm thinking like folk music, you know, but it's spelled with an So I apologize if I end up slipping up and saying that at all throughout this podcast, but I'm trying my best, you know So anyways, uh, Don is a professor in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona He teaches courses in wildland fire science, fire ecology, restoration ecology, and ecological impacts of global change and management responses Whew, a lot of stuff He got his PhD from U of A in 2004 and is currently teaching there.
1: I was just in the field in the Chiricahua Mountains last week with a couple of colleagues. And the Chiricahua's are the largest of the sky islands, so-called, which are the big mountain ranges that we have here in southern Arizona. And, you know, these ranges all start down in the desert valleys and the grasslands, and then they go all the way up, in some cases, above 10,000 feet. So there's a huge range of of types of ecosystems that occur in just a very, very small area in a very short distance. And the Chiricahua's also had a huge fire in 2011 called the Horseshoe 2 Fire that burned over almost the entire mountain range. It's a lot like the Bighorn Fire that is happening in the Santa Catalina's right now as we speak. And in 1994, there was a fire about 22,000 acres called the Rattlesnake Fire. And I was here for that one. And we thought that was a really big event. Well, the Horseshoe 2 was literally 10 times the size. It was over 200,000 acres. And it, as I said, pretty much covered the entire mountain range. So that was in 2011. And what I work on, my interest is what happens to forests after the wildfire? How do they recover? And do they recover? and what are the effects of the severity of the fire when it burns, and what are the effects of climate change on on facilitating or constraining that recovery. For example, we always imagine that after a fire, there would be um, seedlings that are all over the landscape, that to, ready to grow up into new forests. And that may or may not be true. In fact, it may be that in many cases, we don't get recovery because the climate is not favorable for seedlings right now. Seedling, tree seedlings, have very particular requirements to be successful. And if seedlings can't grow, then you don't get a forest back. It's gonna turn into something else. So we were out looking at, at all of that.
0: And so, what do you mean by climate for seedlings, like it's too hot, or
1: not know mm. how what is that? Yeah, climate is a very big general, word. Um, When you get down to plants, and I used it all the time, but we need to take it apart into the things that actually matter. So yes, temperature and precipitation would be the typical things we would also often think about. But even those, we have to take them apart. For example, plants don't really care if it's raining. They want soil, they want water in the soil so the, the real relevant factor is what's the moisture in the soil and you can measure that with soil moisture probes and understand how that uh, works. And then it's not all year, when they really need it is when they're growing. So it's the soil moisture during the growing season that gets to be really critical for a little seedling, which remember is just a couple of centimeters tall. They don't have much of a root system. And so they really need the soil moisture where they are and when they're growing. And if it's not there, then that seedling is gonna die. And the same thing is true for temperature. You know, average annual temperature is really not very informative from an ecological point of view because you've got low temperatures in the winter, but the plants are all dormant, right? And then high temperatures in the summer. And so you really wanna know things about, often you wanna know what's the maximum temperature during the growing season because that again is the kind of thing that might just be too much for a seedling to survive.
0: Okay, and so you were out there, um, did you actually have students with you or is this like a personal research project that
1: you're doing? No, I was with two colleagues and we were doing a particular project that I think is very cool, which is going back to particular points on the landscape and taking repeat photographs. So a colleague of mine, Dr. Jim Malusa in the School of Natural Resources, went out in 2010 when he was doing vegetation mapping for the Coronado National Forest, which is the land manager for most of the Sky Islands. And the year after that, 2011, was a big fire all over the forest. And so he thought, well, I have these photo points. Why don't I go back and see what happened? So he's been going back every two years and re-photographing those points. And what we see visually it's so great is you get to see well. I mean, it's not all great. You're seeing trees dying and falling over, and you know other plants coming in. But you get to see like a, a time lapse of the forest recovering, or if it's not recovering, you get to see how other plants are moving in and taking over. And so we were out redoing the two year refotographing of the photo points in the Chiricaws. Well,
0: that's so wonderful. Definitely to have photos too and use that later on. That's so amazing. Um, so for your research that you're doing now, have you always kind of wanted to study fires? Like where did your interest in like the ecological or the consequences of fire? Well, I don't want to say consequences, because it's kind of negative, but you know what I'm saying? Like where did your interest come from?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I did not start in fire at all. Um, going back to the period of time when I went back to um Uh, get my doctorate. I I went back to school mid-career, I should say. I have a master's in environmental policy from Tufts University, an undergraduate from Oberlin College. And then I've spent about 20 years working in the not-for-profit field. I was the founder and director of two not-for-profits, the Center for Plant Conservation, which works on rare plants, and the Society for Ecological Restoration, which works on restoring damaged habitat. So I've been in this general field of you know tr- of conservation biology and trying to restore ecosystems for a long time. But it was only when I decided to go back to get my doctorate and become a practicing scientist that I began to think, well what kind of scientist do I want to be? And there's a benefit I will say to going back mid-career to doing almost anything because at that point you're really motivated, I was very focused and I made different choices from the ones that I would have made or did make right after I finished my undergraduate degree. Some people know what they want to do when they're in their, you know, when they're twenty years old. I did not. Although I always knew that I loved be out, being out in the woods, I loved backpacking and hiking. I always knew it was going to have something to do with nature. But beyond that, it was kind of ill-defined. And so when I um, went back to school. I was looking for interesting problems to work on and there were a few other intermediate steps, but when I finally got started here at the University of Arizona, I gravitated to the tree ring laboratory. And the reason for that is that a lot of research in ecology is very limited in terms of time. You know, you have, let's say a graduate student who's gonna spend two or three seasons in the field and that's it, that's the extent of their observations. Now maybe if they're using remote sensing or satellite data, maybe they have longer data series, but that only tells you a few things. The stuff, the kind of ecology I like to do is like hands and knees with a hand lens and you know, measuring things very fine scale because I think there's a lot of action that happens at that scale. Mm-hmm. But what I was looking for was a longer understanding of the time scale of ecological processes, because ecology doesn't run on our human timescales. It runs on some scales that are really short, but it runs on a lot of timescales that are decades or centuries, and obviously we can't observe that. So I found the world of tree rings, which would allow me to give an insight into those processes over a long time. And one of the most interesting data sets in tree rings for western North America are fire scars. That is the scars that form on trees when they're exposed to fire but they survive it. And so a tree that that lives through a fire will often have a scar which is actually just a section of the cambium, the growing surface of the tree that, that was killed, and then the tree eventually grows over it and you get a scar that indicates exactly the year when that fire occurred. Well, we now have thousands of records like that from all over Western North America. And so we can tell when fires were happening and where with great precision in space and time. That's an amazing record for, uh, for, for an ecologist when we're used to dealing with, you know, five years of data points and that's it. And so, uh, so I gravitated to the tree ring record and that was what got me interested in fire as an ecological a process and then from that i've discovered just how widespread and pervasive that is and it's been a, a very rich field of study
0: really because i've only ever known about fire ecology through the tree ring lab i had done mm. with one of my classes and i was just mind blown It's like you can literally look back into the past with plants and that's so fantastic well trees but it's so wonderful were you kind of uh you said you were on your hands you like being on your hands and needs are you say were you kind of like a like a dirt child, you know, like when you were growing up, you were like, I had to be outside and you were looking under rocks to see if there were bugs. Were you kind of one of those kids?
1: So I grew up in the city. I grew up in Pittsburgh and, oh, wow. and there was there was nature, there was nature around. But um, I think for me, the formative experiences were probably uh, in the summer. When I, I we spent our, most of our summers in Vermont and New Hampshire, And that was when I was barefoot and in the woods pretty much all summer. And yeah, I think I developed a taste for it. Um, I discovered I didn't really mind getting a little dirty, you know, as long as my parents gave me a bath when I got home at the end of the day. So, uh, and even now, my favorite thing, you know, when I can is to get out backpacking in the mountains and just get away from the cities. And when we were sitting up on our campsite in the Turricama Mountains, in this very remote uh, point way out in the middle of nowhere, above 9,000 feet, and the sun went down and there was a period of time when we couldn't see any lights anywhere except the stars, right? And then eventually we would see, you know, there was a road that goes through the Chiricabas and we'd see a headlight and there were maybe, we could maybe see two lights looking in any direction. So for me, that's a very, very special experience because we're so surrounded with each other we're just so in our, each other's face all the time. And to get out there and re- be reminded that, um, you know, nature is still out there even when we're not looking. And so I, I really crave those experiences.
0: Absolutely. And for, once you moved to Arizona, was there, that's just the way that we're around the natural all the time and we have so many different just types of environments here was that a big pull for you do you feel like this is a th- this is home for
1: you yeah well it 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 um at first it was an acquired taste to be honest having grown up in the east with snow and cold weather i had you know i had to get used to a lot of things about the climate but um uh i'll tell you what i do like well first of all it's really grown on me a lot and i love the monsoon and the sky islands are amazing there's so much more here than people I think from other parts of the country realize. But, but um, one thing that, that is really interesting about the Southwest, you know those maps you can look at that show the world at night mm-hmm. with showing where there, the, there are lights. And if you look at the Eastern United States at night, it's just like lit up like a parking lot. I mean, it's really hard to get away from lights, which means dense co- concentrations of people. You can usually see the Adirondack Mountains in upper New York state. That's actually a pretty big uh, area that's some pretty dark, dark sky. And then parts of New England are like that. And there's a few places around in the Smoky Mountains, but by and large in the Midwest and the Southeast and the Northeast it's difficult, I can just say to get away from, from that. Now you look at the map of the Western US and aside from the big cities of which we have many, there are huge areas that just judging by the lights being emitted at night, you know, you would say, okay, if you want to really see, and if you want to get away from people and not have people, you know, elbow to elbow, there's lots of places where you can, uh, where you can go. And the Southwest is one of those. And of course, Mexico is also the Great Basin here in the West, Nevada and Western Utah is like that too. So I kind of, I like to seek out those places when I can.
0: (laughs) <laughs> That's so nice. Um, and I wanted to ask, so when you were, you know, you said you were a mid-career PhD, were there any challenges in that time for you that you would wish somebody had told you or were you like, this is mid-career, I'm ready, this is what I really want to do?
1: Uh, there were a lot of challenges I didn't expect. Um, at the same time, I was going back to get my doctorate. I also got married and we started having kids. And so that would all that all, yeah. One of the kids came along right when I was starting, and the other child came along just as I was writing my dissertation. So they kind of bookended my academic experience. Um, uh, I'm a pretty positive person in my outlook on life, and. I would say, I mean, the job I have now is just the best job in the world. I get to do research on things that I want, I get to teach exciting young people, I get to communicate with the public, and maybe most important, I get to work on things that matter. And I'm not sure what my life would be like if I was not working on things that matter, but the big motivator for me every day to get out of bed and you know, put on my pants and stand up and get out in the world is the, that there, there's a lot of work that we really need to do for climate change and maintaining ecosystems. And that's what I do. I live and breathe that every day. And so that sense of doing something that matters not only to me personally, but that I think is consequential in the world, that is a huge motivator. And that, in terms of my the work side of my life, that is, um really provides such a high and consistent quality of life and engagement for me. I just, I can't imagine what it would be like going to a job in a cubicle that I hated, but I don't think I would last very long.
0: <laughs> that is so true. Well, that's so beautiful. Just to feel that way and have that outlook on life. I really appreciate that. And when when it comes to teaching, how has that experience been for you? Did, when you got your doctorate, did you know that you really wanted to teach and be a professor?
1: Uh I knew I wanted to be a faculty member and I was incredibly fortunate to be hired. I still pinch myself every day, say, do I really have this job? Um, uh, No, I I was not primarily motivated by teaching at the very beginning. I was really focused on research and service and writing and publishing books and things of that kind. Um, uh, The teaching came along in the job and I began to realize Here's what I realized. First of all, I really began to realize that I really enjoyed interacting with students because they ask great questions and they challenge your assumptions and um, you know they keep you on your toes. Second, just and anybody who teaches knows this: the best way to learn something or consolidate your own knowledge or to fill in the gaps of your knowledge is to have to teach it to somebody else. That's you know, for example. In, in my field, you really have to understand the physics of fire behavior. I mean, you don't have to know it in super detail, but you have to at least understand basically what's going on in a spreading fire. That's the process you're studying. And so I really had to go take myself back to school to learn about fire behavior. You know, once I was already involved in this general field, because I had to transition from fire history to fire ecology to fire behavior. So you learn a lot. But the third thing, and I think this is now my main motivator, is that, um, well, this comment pertains to when campus is open, which as <laughs> at the moment, as we speak, it is not, but um, when I walk around campus, when the UA campus is full, I see 40,000, not only interested, engaged minds, but I see 40,000 future voters and citizens. To be perfectly honest. And I think all of us in the faculty have the responsibility to make sure that every student leaves the university ready to be an engaged citizen in our society, not just to have a job and not just to have a career, but to understand what it means to live in society. And in particular, this goes for me to the question of global change, which is my driving passion. So we've started a degree program in global change ecology in my department, School of Natural Resources for students who want to do the kind of work that I do. But we're also starting to roll out a minor in global, in climate change and society that will be available to every student in the university. And we don't know exactly when this is going to come online, but I think it's coming up soon. And so that's for students who are not in ecology or not in the sciences but for somebody in economics or business or law or theater or sociology or you know literature pretty much any field and the reason for that is that everybody every student without exception is one of the few things you can say about ua students absolutely universally is that the world they will grow up in is a world of climate change. That's the nature of being a college-age student right now. That's the one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty is that it will be a world of climate change for your entire life. And the reason is, of course, no matter how fast we start to bend the curve and finally get our emissions under control, we have a certain amount of change that's already in the atmosphere, that's already happening, and that um, we can't alter at this point, even if we wanted to. And I think students need to be prepared to understand and think about that because you can't, um, it's just like the coronavirus. You can't pretend it away. You can't say, oh, it's over and make it over. It just doesn't work that way. And climate change is the same way. You can say, well, that's uncomfortable. I don't wanna think about it. Fine, don't think about it, but it's gonna happen. And and in fact, it is already happening.
0: Are you at all, worried, just since this pandemic happened, not that it's a bad thing, but that the, I felt like the, well, like the climate change movement was really starting to come into its own and all over the world, especially for young activists. Do you think that the pandemic has kind of pulled that movement? Are you worried about that at all?
1: You mean that it's taken the focus away from climate? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Uh, no, I don't feel that way at all. Any more that I feel that the movement for racial and social justice takes away from the climate movement. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I think these were, these uh, streams of change are absolutely irrevocably interwoven. And there are many, many others that are like that. Um, uh, for example, the the struggle for social and racial justice right now has focused on certain communities which have been really overlooked in the mainstream culture and that's long overdue, not as much attention has been paid to indigenous peoples right here in our own midst. And if you want to talk about original sin for your American culture in North America, it's having appropriated the land that people had been living on for a very long time. So there are other streams that I think come into this that, that are part of the same Uh, struggle. And I actually think what they do is they build a community of concern about each other and the planet. That's the way that I look at it. And so I don't see them as separate. I don't see them as distractions at all. I think they're completely interwoven.
0: That makes me feel better. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think um, racial justice and environmental justice will soon
1: go hand-in-hand or are hand-in-hand, and and social justice is the same. You can't disconnect um, the higher incidence of disease in communities of color from the fact that their water is more polluted, and their air is more polluted, and they don't have access to health care, and in parts of the world outside of the United States, that, you know, global poverty is one of the main drivers of environmental degradation, and so these, the, the, climate and environment and social justice movements are all completely uh, linked. And at a certain level, you won't be able to solve one without also solving the other two simultaneously.
0: Oh, that was fantastic. Thank you for that wonderful advice. And that makes me feel a lot better to know that there are people like you in the world who are actually creating I don't know a space for students to talk about that because I think that minor would actually be fantastic and I really hope it does happen. Are you hoping to have it happen in the next year or is it maybe like a future thing because of the pandemic?
1: No it's been proposed to the university and actually right before the pandemic happened it was on the verge of approval and I think uh, the university leadership has been justifiably busy with other things right now so like trying to keep the university afloat and trying to keep all of us healthy i I'm happy that they're doing that. Uh, so I can't say when it's gonna come online, but uh, we do hope that it's um, soon. And, and yes, we're looking forward to it. I think that it's um, it's an important thing for, for, th- for students to have as an option.
0: Absolutely. And I wish you the best of luck with that. And I hope that comes out as soon as it can. But, um, oh, is there anything else that you have, like some wisdom for any young scientists listening other than that wonderful advice that you just gave? And
1: I, I don't usually um, assume uh, wisdom on my part. On a good day, I can just kind of complete my sentences and hope that that's enough. Um, uh, but I would just return to one point we talked about, which is the the most important thing is to do something that you really love. If you pick a career, and I I this is not, I'm hardly the first person to ever say this, but Lots of people pick a career because they're going to make a lot of money or because they think it will give them power or influence. And if that's the kind of thing that makes you really happy, then fine. My observation is that the people who are truly happy, and I mean not just like a week or two of, wow, what a rush, you know, I made a million bucks, but the people who are happy for their entire lives are people who are doing things that they actually really love doing and that they would do if they weren't even being paid for it. So, and I can say that if I, if for some reason, I better not say this in case somebody says, okay, you're volunteering. (laughs) But uh, um, the fact is I'd be doing a lot of what I'm doing right now even if I weren't getting paid for it. So I I think you should always look for something that meets that standard. And that's not to say that having a career that gives you a good standard of living isn't important. Obviously that is important. And if, especially if it's not only you individually, but a family or, you know, some other people who are dependent on you. So um, it's not that that's unimportant, but I, my observations are that the people who follow their passion and what they really love, the work will find them because the world always needs people who are passionate like that. I have a friend, a colleague, who's just the most amazing photographer and he's just always out. He studies aquatic insects, right? Very, very specific. He'd be a great person to talk to, Michael Bogan. And, um, but he takes just the most extraordinary photographs of things happening in nature. And I'm quite sure that he, did that long before he was a faculty member, and he will do it, you know, for the rest of his life. But the images that he takes and the insights we get from that work are just just amazing, and that all derives from his love and passion for nature. So that's just a little example of I think the kind of choice that hopefully students uh, can make. And it's not to say you can't take a misstep; you accidentally go into something that you know, is more about the money than about your passion. That's fine. You're building your your body of experience. But in the long run, I really think that happiness comes from that combination of the love for what you're doing and its importance in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Don, for this wonderful conversation and having me. And I, Is it okay that we stop now? Or are you? Is this? Was this enough time for you?
1: This is great. No, thanks for doing this, and and really thank you for for doing this and providing this opportunity.
0: Well, guys, that is the end of our podcast today. I know it's a little shorter, but I figured it was short and sweet. And Don was pressed for time, and I really appreciated him taking his time to talk to me. Um, I just want to thank Don for such a wonderful conversation, and he gave me he gave me so many more great references for the podcast, so I'm very excited to bring those to you guys, um, in the coming weeks. I also want to thank the Daily Wildcat and my editor, Amit, um, and as you guys know, I end each episode now with something I like to call quarantine things, and today's quarantine th- quarantine things is a fun fact. Did you guys know the Dalai Lama uploaded an album on Spotify? I would highly recommend checking it out. It's very, obviously very chill music, but my favorite song is Compassion. I've been doing a lot of yoga um, to that uh, inside, obviously. So anyways, go check that out, and I love you guys. Stay safe, and um, I'll see you guys next week. Bye!